I'm Taisha Thompson. I'm Eric Lyon. And I'm Wallace Lages. And this is The Inside Story, a podcast about building an institute for empathic and immersive narrative, supported by an American Council of Learned Societies Digital Justice Seed Grant. In this episode, Wallace, Eric, and I will be thinking through the role of empathy, access, and narrative in immersive technologies in conversation with our advisory board member, Al Evangelista, a multidisciplinary artist and an assistant professor of dance at Oberlin College. Al Evangelista is joining us today on the Inside Story. Thank you so much for being here. I just want to ask you, what are you working on right now? Thank you so much for having me. I feel so honored to be here. Um, And every time we meet, it's always really exciting and energizing. So thank you. Um, What am I working on currently? In a couple weeks, I have a residency, although they don't like to call it a residency. They call it a dancing lab at the National Center for Choreography in Akron. And I'm bringing together a couple of queer Filipinx American identifying choreographers. Um, It'll be the first time that we actually see each other in person. (laughs) We met during the pandemic, so it'll be an exciting time to get together, share bread, break bread, um, and move together. And then I'm also working on an augmented reality project called Places I Can't Dance, where I use motion capture um, and then put myself in places, outer space, the past, the future, um, just to play with imagination um, and places I can't dance currently. I think those are the two big things. Awesome. So what is this dance lab exactly? Like, are you seeking to create something that will be performed in front of a large audience or is it just to build relationships among the other choreographers? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the the primary goal is to build community and resources, right? So a lot of time what comes out of things are white papers. Like these are the things that we should talk about now. But my joke for this residency is to uh, establish a brown paper afterwards. (laughs) So how do we... Um, And then it's also, there are local orgs that I'm trying to connect with that I haven't yet in the area. Okay, so... You're very theoretical, you know, in terms of how you approach your work. Seriously, like you are. And I'm thinking through, of course, you know, the brown paper versus the white paper. I know you've thought even more about that other than just color (laughs) contrast. Right. So I'm thinking and I'm also thinking how you pivoted brown paper with local orgs. That is something more than just putting down best practices or what you gained from the experience. Can you explain that brown paper a little bit more? (laughs) Yeah, right. Oh, you're so good, Taisha. I'm thinking about uh, ways in which we put hierarchies on information, um, how we make it accessible to people, not just in an institution, not just part of local communities, but um, particularly something in the dance field is that there are the two coasts and there are performers on either in LA or New York, but how do we also think about that there are people in the Midwest doing work that's fascinating and how do we put them in contact and in conversation with one another um, in ways that are sustainable, not just one-offs. Mm. So that's okay. part of what this idea of the brown paper can be. I don't know what it is besides that title, although you did catch me in the theoretical Um But I don't know. I'm trying to think through what does it actually mean to be in community and what community means? Because community automatically excludes someone. Exactly. I love this. I love, you know, I'm loving this even more right now because next (laughs) month we'll be thinking through our own white paper. Now I'm thinking that it should be brown, right? (laughs) Like, so... This is really relevant to the work that we're doing with the Institute for Building an Empathic Immersive um, Narrative. Uh, But I'm also thinking through um, the sustainability of paper, right? You know, just thinking through the archive, like what places are you thinking about posting or sharing this information? Mm -hmm. There are so many. So thinking about archives also in general is who is in the archive, 
who has access of the archive, who is in control of the archive. <laughs> so there, um, and then in terms of, I'm sure we'll get into this later talking about work, but there are so many ways to do choreographic or dance and technology work. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, I, I hesitate a lot when thinking about like where where are the places I need to name because then it creates a hierarchy of of places for the archive. Um, so usually it's like whoever wants it, but then also it's not it can't be generalized. So who can help get the information out there? And so with NCC Akron, the National Center for Choreography Akron, we're thinking about the local orgs and we're also thinking about who are the Midwest artists that we can partner with. And then also Daring Dances, which is also co-sponsoring the event, um, is a Midwest-based organization that brings together a bunch of choreographers and dancers. So they're gonna host um, a lot of the information as well. And they do a lot of interesting dance and technology work. Nice. Okay, so this is the pivot to the technology yeah. part. Based on what you just said, where are the places I need to name? Like that reminded me of places I can't dance, right? Uh-huh. And your decision in that AR project to name some places, right? So what? And I I clicked the links, and you know I understood what constituted putting you in the Louvre in in light of like Faith Rheingold's work. Mm -hmm. But what are some other places where you haven't yet posted that you're thinking through, what are some places I need to name in order to put myself, embody myself in those um, spaces? Yeah, so I also also turn this towards community-based work so i i made the app where people can place me where they are Ooh, um, yeah. and the people that i had tested out just did it on their computer and it works so i have a bunch of photos of people dancing me dancing on their foreheads <laughs> um, so uh i think it's uh i'm forgetting who i should be quoting this uh, attributing this quote to but we're the quote is we're in an imagination battle so mm. um when we're trying to think of the places that we can, when I try to name the places, I'm also trying to think of where where can other people place me that I just can't even think of. Right. Um, Thank you for that. And and then, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. (laughs) Because even in that way, you're still being theoretical, right? You're still being community-based because you're letting the community build the archive of where to place you. So it's always thinking outside of yourself, even in terms of that particular app and its embodiment. Yeah. And then when I'm feeling selfish, I look for the places where there's lack of representation and then Mm -hmm. I try to put myself there. Love it. If I may follow up, uh, first of all, one reason I'm loving this is that we're so interested in interrogating uh, concepts that are sometimes, sometimes have a, um, a positive valence, but we're not sure if they if they fully deserve it. I mean, we've already had had some really uh, interest, interesting uh, critiques of um, of empathy, which is one of the key uh, concepts for for our institute. So, so you here have been critiquing community, which uh, which we almost always think community is great. We you know we we bring the people together, and uh, you know of course there's the idea of mutual aid, where you know where larger structures are not helping the community, the community house itself. So there's a lot of positive ideas there, but then there's also the idea that community always excludes somebody. Um, and then there's a question of, well, you know, should they be excluded? Should they not be excluded? That's, that's an interesting uh, um, critique that I'd love to hear more about. And then the other one, which I think is fascinating to me, is the idea of uh, an archive as a kind of a center of power in a way, at least when an archive gets to the point, like, I don't know, like the Library of Congress or something like that. It's it, it's referential. Uh, and, and certainly uh, in terms of historiographies, when, you know, some people get mentioned, some people don't, why, you know, why are some people in, why are some, some people out? Um, that very often that does not get interrogated. In other words, certain people are become like the superstars or the geniuses of uh, you mm-hmm. know a, a particular movement. But then uh, there are of, often other people who are in their own way just as important, but they're you know kind of not not in the picture. So uh, I think thinking through the question of both interrogating community and 
and interrogating archiving, do you have a sense of what ethical curation would look like um, to, to deal with those questions? Yeah, so I can point towards folks who are thinking about it a lot better than I can. Um, so Miranda Joseph is thinking about community and so she wrote the book against the romance of community, trying to talk through the ethics of who's in, who's out, um, in a very ap- approachable, easy to read way. And then I'm also thinking of Black feminist Bernice Johnson Reagan, who um, writes about community in terms of we need the different spaces, and it's okay that the spaces are sometimes everyone, it's okay that the spaces are sometimes these sorts of folks, and so it's allowing permission for those variables to exist. Um, So in terms of ethical curation, um, I'm I'm wondering about uh, just allowing the possibilities to be there and the contradictions. So earlier when I referenced that there could be of different ways to do the work, um, especially if they're going to be in conversation with one another oppositionally, then I then I would love to hear more about it. Um, yeah. Okay, so I've I've been thinking here about some of the things that you that you said, right? So I was very interested on on the project you mentioned, the places I can dance, right? And in thinking about okay, what what does it mean, right, for for your scholarship, for the things that that you're interested in, right? So I was thinking that like dancing is very spatial, right? Um, like unless other types of narratives that that we've been talking about, right? Thinking about like dance and how your body occupies a position in space, right? And and all the things that you, that have to do with with embodiment, right? Um, so it's it seems like a, a very good match, right? For some of the technology that we've been talking about, like like spatial technology, like AR and VR, and and then later you also mentioned other things, right? That has to do with like um, more a participatory approach in which you, you have community interacting and like, deciding things about your work, right? Like like mm-hmm. when you mentioned, oh, I'm mean, dancing on the forehead of someone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think about this, this, these new possibilities, right? That you, that you can have um, by using these technologies, like having multiple copies of you, right? Or having uh, you dances in the body of someone else, or having someone else, mm-hmm. you know, have your body, right? Like, I don't mm-hmm. be able to float, like things that are not possible in in real life. So I guess what I'm trying to 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 ask, and I would like to hear a little bit more from you, is it's how like playing with these things have like change the way you think about about your art, about your work, right? And how those things like inform one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, it's similar too to the way Taisha nodded towards my artistic practice as theoretical. Of um, there is inherent risk um, in putting giving software an app my avatar in a and letting folks say put me wherever. Right. The when I when I told friends that I was doing this, they're like, "Are you sure you want to say wherever? Right? Is there any container that you want to put around this?" And in the spirit of ethical curation, I was like, "No, let's just see what happens. Let's see what happens, and then we'll go from there." Um, but then going back to artistic practice uh, and how AR and the technology helps guide or frame these questions. Um, I had a, a a mentor once talk to me about the way that we just approach art. So when you're in a museum and you're walking around, how is the artist uh, telling you to approach the work, to um, not just look at the work, but let's say it's a, a, a physical piece, like you need to pick up a phone and listen to it. What are they asking you to do with your body? Um, and so technology, I feel at this moment is really helping me th- ask people to engage in different ways. Um, and so that's that's sort of what I'm trying to play with is how do we have these devices in a theater? Right? So that's, it's also like hard questions. They're sitting in an audience and I'm like, don't turn off your phones, turn them on and maybe turn on sound, <laughs> right? So it's, it's a weird conundrum 
But it's also getting at these, like, people say you have to turn off your phones when you're in a theater, but why? And what does it say about etiquette and who control? So it's, it's again, about power in different ways. Um, and I think that technology is just, it, it, it's a horizon that I'm just trying to be asking questions about, especially with the wonderful folks that are part of this advisory board and all the things that everyone here on this call is doing. Um, there are so many ways and I'm just trying to find my way through it. <laughs> It's nice, fair, yeah. I'm thinking about what you were saying, and this is not fully thought out, but about power, approaching technology in, a, in different ways, and the way your work embodies the personal and familial, and how do you create, or and get others to create through your creation, right? Like, how do you direct people to be vulnerable with their own material and your material as they are aware of this power dynamic in the field that you're in? I, and, and and it's not a fully thought out question, but let me I'm gonna tell you the reason why I'm asking it, mm -hmm. and then maybe it'll help you think of like the possible angle. Mm -hmm. We are asking people to create narratives that are immersive and that evoke empathy and perhaps in their audiences. This may mean that they need to share. They may want to share stories that make them vulnerable or make certain populations vulnerable in the telling of them. Uh -huh. And so I was thinking about your work as a performer as someone who works with the body and works with other people to get their scholarship done about mm -hmm. the strategies that you may use to work with people as you negotiate all of those spaces at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's a good question. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the first question and the question I get the most is, is this my project to participate in or how can I ethically participate in this mm -hmm. um, I don't identify as queer Filipinx American why should I dance in this piece and so um, sometimes I just say you know don't do anything that hurts if it feels too uncomfortable we won't have to do that right we can make this the boundary where you can feel brave enough to try stuff but if we get to the performance and you don't want to do it you don't have to do it right and then other times um I point towards the need for allyship, right? There isn't a binary here of participation. Um, so how do you, how does one become um, a, a, an ally for the work in different ways? Um, and then, yeah, I guess I just approach it from a, like a physical therapy standpoint of don't do anything that hurts. Don't, like, let's grow together. Let's figure out what it is. Um, but don't do anything that hurts. But it's a good question. It comes up a lot. So, because the, the question of don't do anything that hurts mm -hmm. um, reminds me of the article you wrote in response to taking that workshop. What workshop was it? Oh, the bystander um, intervention training. The bystander intervention training. Uh -huh. And the first step was, I think, distraction. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking through, <laughs> don't do anything that hurts. And in an effort to be an ally in some way, to distract a, a situation when someone is being hostile to another, mm -hmm. it may hurt. Because when I was reading the article, right. I was like, do I, would I feel comfortable right. if someone was being confronted and physically I'm there, mm -hmm. would I have the courage and the, the desire to be an ally in such a mm -hmm. way that I would drop something to distract the situation or ask what time it was mm -hmm. to distract the situation? I mean, because... That could be dangerous, right? Mm -hmm. Like that. I mean, it could, considering our society, like that could be a situation where something can happen to your body. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm I'm thinking about do not do anything that hurts. That there is, even as we 
sometimes you got to get your hands dirty, right? Like sometimes mm-hmm. you have to go through the thing. And so I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about that. Like what, what is too much and then allowing people to kind of determine that and, and not wanting to like regret something in the end. Mm-hmm. Like that's one of my thoughts in response to what you said about, you know, wanting people to be allies, but not wanting them to hurt themselves in the yeah. process I and negotiating that. that kind of care. Right. Because you will, I mean, part of the, f- I say don't do anything that hurts in in the idea that um, you are you have to do it to figure out that it hurts. Right? <laughs> so, and then once you figure it out, then you can try to adjust the strategy accordingly. But it's a good point to say there is harm in interventions. There is harm in trying to address the harm. People get vulnerable all the time. But it's also a good question in terms of like, uh, there's a good debate right now about uh, value virtue signaling, right? And so like the actions that just virtue signal um, and should folks still do that? And uh, there's this the scholar at the University of Wisconsin, um, James McMaster, who, who said we need to do the virtue signaling at least to have the vocabulary that this is, this is not okay. And so this is the language that is pointing towards what could be okay. But it, it it's the small step. Um, I think it's Yutian Wang who says it's like low bar, lower bar, lower bar. Like harm is lowest mm-hmm. bar. Um, trying to intervene might be the middle bar. And then like really dismantling things is the highest bar. But thinking about it in terms of the spectrum, um, because everyone will have a different level of harm or hurt. Um, and it'll be hard to find, too. I don't think it's easy. It's not easy work. I wish it could be easy work. I think we all wish it could be easy work. Um, but trying to to get to what isn't hurt, so you still have to do the thing. You still have to get hurt along the way. Right, right. That was interesting. I wrote that down. You don't have to, you have to do it to figure out it hurts. Mm-hmm. Huh. Is that I mean, something? Oh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Well, I just going back to the like, if I'm if I'm doing a squat and I feel like the little tinge in my knee as I start to do the squat, then I know I can't do squats that day. Right. I'm old now. I can't do that. <laughs> so but it's also uh, I know that there's a different movement I can do to work out my lower body. So I'll try to do that version instead. Right. So I'm thinking through, I don't know if that analogy or metaphor was horrible in terms of diversity work, but that's what I'm thinking of. No, it certainly helps um, because you have a barometer, you have, you know, the, the person, you know, has the courage to do it and then they can decide if they need to pull back some or engage more. Maybe there's more that they can do. They just they mm-hmm. decide, oh, that doesn't hurt at all. I don't even feel mm-hmm. it. Exactly. And there's more that they can do. Um, This also brings up another thing for me about visibility that sometimes, and I was thinking about being embodied and being present, you know, just people being able to see you, but there are also some benefits. And I I read this in some of your writing of being, not being seen, of, Mm -hmm. of, of the ability, if you can, if you have it, Mm-hmm. to 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 be hidden to be mm-hmm. invisible um and so can you speak to that more in terms of your artistic practice mhm i think the best uh, the way that i like to think about it is like trying to rest right the, the intentionally trying to rest and sometimes that is a pulling back um and sometimes that's an asking folks to hold the mantle for a little bit um but i also was thinking of this as you were talking about um about this different kind of work is that sometimes, and I'm thinking about this in terms of the advisory board of as people are telling their stories, how are they being taken care of by other folks or the part of the team? Mm. Um, what are the the ways like, so there was just an anti-Asian hate um, journal that I was a part of that uh, special issue. And uh, the email came out that it 
got released and now was the time where we really need to be in community with one another. So what are the ways in which we were supporting each other um, as it was getting circulated? So that's something that I'm I'm trying to think about in terms of um, having the privilege to step back. Um, but it is a, a complicated question in terms of who has that privilege, notions of power, um, ideas of the, it's not, it really gets to an issue of equity um, and justice um, that I think I cannot answer very succinctly. <laughs> but yeah. So I'd love to circle back to this question around uh, don't do it if it hurts, so, mm. because it, it, it seems to me so relevant to the institute that we're trying to build. Uh, again, in terms of uh, it, as we've had our conversations with uh, members of our advisory board, I think we've been more and more aware of the ethical issues at the same time that people are also saying, don't be too worried. Just nobody's done this before. You have to go mm -hmm. for it. Mm -hmm. uh, but it certainly is extremely helpful for us to think through these uh, questions. And so I, I realize that that conversation, it seems to me, puts a number of both traditional and non-traditional uh, thoughts about the art sort of in, in tension in an interesting way. Because in, in a very um, old traditional way, there's, there's a, um, a concept that art is risk. That, mm -hmm. that art is a space where you try things and uh, try things even that might say, seem extreme. Like you you have a string quartet that's six hours long. That's mm -hmm. going to challenge some people. You could always walk out, though. Um, or you have, uh, you know, a, a story or a poem or a movie about a subject that's really devastating and, and triggering for some people. It simply is going to hurt, hurt. There's no way around it. So you've got that whole space of art as a place for taking risks. On the other hand, you don't want anyone to be harmed. So uh -huh. you that's there. there's that tension there. There's also, uh, I think, the question of who is taking the risk. And I think that this is where things maybe move a little bit. Because if you look at a, maybe a more traditional, at least, from our standpoint, a uh, piece like uh, Yoko Ono's cut piece, uh, mm -hmm. it seems pretty clear that Yoko Ono is sort of taking the risk there. But mm -hmm. we're maybe thinking about uh, pieces where the risk is more um, equitably <laughs> distributed, that it's mm -hmm. not just the artist who is taking the risk. And so, I mean, the last uh, part of this is consent, which is that when you, when you come in to... Um, engage with a work of art, you're consenting to be challenged by it, and you also have the freedom to walk out if um, if it's causing harm for you. So it seems that these we've got these different issues now that are kind of in tension. Art is risk. Who is taking the risk? Uh, mm -hmm. What are the ethics of the situation? Um, do are are we making sure that everybody is consenting? to the situation. Uh -huh. So let, let me just ask you, Al, how, how do you feel about that constellation of, of questions? I, I love the constellation of questions. And I also uh, love that it's centering around um, this question of consent. Um, I, I guess it's also funny because I was just in an IRB. I sit on the IRB committee for Oberlin, so I'm thinking about consent a lot in terms of participation. And do folks know that they have the option? And how many times have you told them that they have XYZ option? Um, did you tell them not just in writing, but also verbally? Um, who has, it's interesting when you think about who has the training to tell people that they have consent to do something, and then also uh, know that you can remind them halfway through the experiment that they have still the option to leave without repercussions. Like some people might get too engrossed in the conversation if it's an interview that they will forget that that's an option for the interviewee. Um, so the con I mean, I think that web, the constellation will just get larger and larger and larger, but it's good questions to ask in terms of reducing harm reduction. Um, and I don't, yeah, that's also one of those not easy questions. And there's now a, no, a new field, and it's not new, it's existed before, of um, 
intimacy training in theater. So how is that happening? It's happening in films and TV a lot now. Um, There are different schools that are trying to standardize the way that people are saying, this is how you talk about your boundary. This is how you can check in with the other person. Um, But even in the field of dance, it's not something that has been formalized. So last year, I was trying to work on a project where we did this basic body check-in where we would say, you can touch this part of my body. I'll show you the parts where you can touch and lift me today in rehearsal. Um, And the person will practice practicing and touching this amount of touch, but that isn't standardized. And how do you start to standardize that when it's a social dance or when it's improvisation, right? So that's, yeah, the constellation just gets bigger, Eric. I don't know. Um, I guess I'll also add, there are people who are trying to think, I hear an echo. Is it just me? Is it just me? Um, there there are people who are trying to think through these questions They're, um, in different ways. And so I guess one of the ways that I just want to point out is there's um, a group led by uh, Jay Bowie, Melanie Green, called the Dance Union. And so there isn't a union in dance, right? We, we fall under actors' equity. Um, but they're trying to think through particularly what is equity in terms of race um, in the dance rehearsal room. Um, what are, why aren't there standard breaks? All of that kind of, what is equal compensation? Um, and so they're, at the end of all of their podcasts, they ask the question, what does your dance union look like? Um, so I think that points towards like, what does that constellation look like for you, Eric? Um, what might it look like? How do we change it? And just as a follow-up, because we have a very big word that that we keep on circling around, which is empathy, and <laughs> and so I, I wanted to you know let's let's actually just ask you, Al, um, because you do a lot of work, as I understand it, with improvisatory uh, collaboration. So how does empathy work for you in in those spaces? Yeah, I usually so. Empathy is one of, and then it's funny considering all our other conversations and podcasts <laughs> for this institute. Um, but I, I approach empathy, at least in my classroom, um, and then also that extends to rehearsal room um, around the word brave. So there's a lot of talk now about safe space, um, but I like to try to, and this is not new, I borrow this from a friend at Cornell, Caitlin Kane, um, called brave space. So how do we start to make, and this is goes back to the hurt question, Taisha, of how do you allow yourself to take the, the risks, the hurt, um, and then be brave enough so that you can then also grow from it, right? So mm-hmm. um, part of that is creating community agreements at the beginning, right? These are the boundaries that we want to make sure are, are here. Um, and then the other part of that is uh, knowing that empathy is different for everyone, right? So okay. like speak from the eye, all of that kind of, the ouch oops the ouch oops is always a fun one because you get to practice saying ouch and then the other person gets to say why. All that. Okay. It's a few things I'm thinking. <laughs> um, going back to empathy and the, what were you, what were you calling it? The intimacy training. Mm-hmm. And I was in a working group and we were thinking through um, that touch was Mm -hmm. a major way to um, demonstrate empathy and and care. And so we're in we're creating um, spatial audio and projects and virtual reality projects. Are there ways that you know of as a person who works with the body of ways to express touch in non-tactile, like in a situation where you're not using necessarily your hands, but you're in a VR, you're in an AR, you're in a Mm. spatial audio kind of experience. Do you know of any simulation of that 
Um, yeah, I, yeah, it's cur- I'm curious. Mm-hmm. Besides, like the rubber hand illusion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm trying. I mean, there are two ways that I've tried. Well, the way the scaffold in a messy direction, you start with eye contact, and even just eye okay. contact, especially post-vaccine or pre-vaccine, there wasn't a lot of eye contact. Um, and so introducing that back in the classroom, it was students were like, I feel very awkward. And that was that was like that before the pandemic. And now it's even more stressful to hold eye contact. So, I mean, it it's a different, I, th- I still would argue that there's touch involved in eye contact. I don't know. Yeah. And then the other way is um, something I haven't put into a work yet. So whoever's listening, don't steal this idea. But I want, but I, I've been trying to figure out ways, and Eric, maybe you can help me with this, is that when people, we already know that the research shows that the base, like when people feel the base, they like engage more. So I've been trying to figure out ways in which certain dance movements would have um, particular base moments so that they would connect more to the performance that's happening. Um, particularly in like putting it in under audience banks so the seats would actually move, not in ways that were uncomfortable or bad for the years, but ways that actually give a tactile feel. Um, I haven't found the best way to do that yet. I played with it a little bit, um, but that's that's one way that I'm thinking about touch that isn't physical. So you're thinking that, that sa- the motion of sound itself, since, since sound is actually a kind of touch, in mm-hmm. a way, mm-hmm. I mean, you, if you actually, you know, un, unravel your uh, your inner ear, you know, you've got these sort of skin and hair cells. It's almost yeah. and 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 they're they're being uh, really kind of vibrated as mm-hmm. as as uh, sound waves go, uh, you know, a, across, uh, you know, that that um, that Orion, and you really can have the sense of. When when sound is is working with a, a spatial profile, it's moving towards you. Um, mm-hmm. it, it it does something different than when you have the sense of of sound being projected away from you. And mm-hmm. and I think that you know some of the ways that we've been rethinking sound uh, in 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 the in the spatial domain when we're using high density loudspeaker arrays is is part of maybe rethinking things away from a proscenium stage where mm-hmm. you know the performers are in front of us they're the important people we're all sort of sitting and observing them and our job is to just sit there and, and applaud them but once they once a dance group comes out into the audience and is is in and among among the audience is it's a completely different uh, experience and and likewise once once sound uh, stops being in front of you and is around you and creates uh, sensations that that we refer uh, refer to as um, envelopment sometimes mm. or or even engulfment that you're really mm-hmm. inside of this thing you have a very different relationship to it and in some of the projects that we've worked on where where we're trying to um, present stories that uh, that are already, I think, pretty moving, having mm-hmm. having the sound move through you when it's representing things that are happening in, in those stories, I think is very helpful. So so thank you for that question, even, even, though, <laughs> even though I thought we were the ones doing the interview here. Um, t- turnaround is fair play. Yeah. I mean, it is. <laughs> that's, uh, I, yeah, I want to know more about that. And that's why I'm so glad to be here. Come to CubeFest. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about this notion of um, like looking into the eyes is is a is a touch, right? And then the Eric was saying like sound is also a kind of touch, right? I'm trying to think about okay, what what is going on here, right? It's we're clearly not talking entirely metaphorically. Uh, but we also, you know, not thinking of talking about the actual, you know, touch as, as as we think about it. So, so what I was wondering is like, what are we talking about? Um, there is the saying, "What the 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 eye is the the window of the soul," <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, what but. but 
what what do you learn and which other kinds of like interactions um, would have the same type of property, right? Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, so you're moving around, right? You're dancing, and there's always all. Uh, I'm full of sayings today, but there's also this this saying like dance like no one is watching. Nobody's Have watching. No one heard about that, right? So it's it's about the same thing, right? Uh, the same the same thing that makes you you uncomfortable um, when someone talks to you without but without giving the permission is kind of this is it actually the same as like you're dancing and you think you're alone but in fact you're not and you don't really want to look into the eye of someone who just you know crossed on the street but that mm -hmm. person does it to you right uh, mm -hmm. I think that's the word. I think permission is the word. Are you giving yourself permission? Are you giving another person permission? And then it's also about power, right? Who was allowed to make eye contact historically and who wasn't? What did eye contact do before? Um, but I do, what are, I think it's in some ways we're talking about power, um, but I don't know if that fully answers your question, Wallace. It's a great question. I also love it as like, what are we talking about? Why are we here? Yeah, and I, and I think those things are important because we can start to think, okay, what what does that mean for you know our practice and the things that we're doing? Kind how can we how can we make them better, right? So you're just talking about the the situation in in, in dance and in theater where where there's a protocol, right? And you're at least experimenting with this protocol that that mm -hmm. let people approach each other right in a way that it's it's comfortable and also kind of um like thinking about power kind of equalize the uh, uh -huh. the differences in there right so what would be you know equivalent protocols for uh other types of touch right um uh -huh. and how can we incorporate those things in you know in our pra practice and and yeah so those are very interesting questions if anyone has ideas <laughs> Thoughts. We can bring it to the full advisory board. <laughs> In the next podcast, actually. <laughs> yeah. That would be actually a very interesting conversation considering all of the different disciplines and what everyone does. Yeah. That would be... I, we're going to do that. That because would be even, the question. Not, like, I know that eye contact is hurt. It hurts, like really hurts for some folks that are neurodivergent. So I know that Ashley would give me a very good, a good answer to that. And Riam, as a medical doctor, yeah, exactly. thinking through that particular practice and how, you know, as a, a doctor navigating hurt mm -hmm. and patients. Yeah, I think it's um, a great one to provide for the advisory board. So thank you. <laughs> happy. always happy is there anything else you would like to share mm, i don't know i don't think so i mean do the bystander training intervention training it's 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 really simple it's five steps um but also i I'm, I'm really excited to see where this institute goes I, so folks that are listening Congratulations, you got to be a part of something at the beginning, and it's really exciting. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on the Inside Story. We have here our Evangelista, Assistant Professor at Oberlin College and Conservatory. Thank you so much. Thank you. In this episode, we discussed empathy, ethical vulnerability, community art making, and more. Al Evangelista told us about his Places I Can't Dance app in which users can help Al dance in augmented reality, where he cannot do so in real life. We considered the complexities of power, permission, and care involved in working with archives and community partners circling around the maxim, don't do anything that hurts, the conversation also touched on ways to navigate allyship, bystander intervention, and harm. We concluded 
by reflecting on ways to stimulate touch in immersive technologies and the protocols for allowing people to approach one another. You know, okay, I'll, I'll just kind of dive into it. Uh, so I think one of the things that's really interesting about <laughs> Al's work and maybe quite different from any of our other advisors is it's it's about the body in space. It's, it's dance, it's movement, and also about touch. And so that brought up some kind of interesting issues that we hadn't discussed, I think, uh, before, but I think they're important for empathy. Uh, a lot having to do with the sense of um, you're inviting an audience into a space and because of potential interaction with the audience that might involve either virtual touch or real touch, um, there, there may be some issues of, of consent and um, for the audience to understand their relationship to the work of art. Uh, maybe in a different way than uh, some of the other questions about, let's say, a visual stimulus or auditory stimulus. Yeah, something that I guess was different as well is basically how he positions himself, right? Like um, when, when we talked about the kind of work that he's doing, he's like just saying that he had to be open, right? Uh, and also the art had to be open. So I think that until this point, we were thinking mostly about there's this thing called the author and then there's this thing called the, the user or interactor or spectator, right? And he's kind of blending those, those things in his work, right? Um, making it so that what uh, what is there can be appropriated and and changed and modified right? and and looking at the the result of that um, dialogue right between the the artist and those who are experiencing the art and in a certain sense that's also what we say when we talk about empathy, right? This this dialogue between like two people, and he's talking about how to do that through the through the medium and through the the object itself that that's being that's being produced there, and also to how hard it is is to make this right to be open and and make your work like available for other people to to manipulate and build upon and i think those are all the interesting aspects that haven't been touched before i agree i think that one thing that really struck me was how what a, what a large role ethics plays in his thinking about the relationship between the artist and audience because it's entirely possible to not consider that at all. In, in some ways, it's almost the norm that, you know, the artists give a performance, the audience takes away from it whatever they do. Um, some, some artists even are lean towards non-intervention as much as possible. Sort of like, we'll do our thing. We don't even want to tell you what to think about it. Uh, and then you take away from it what you do. And no consideration of if there might be any potential harm in in the artwork or um, and or a potential gain. I mean, it's 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 just kind of uh, neutral, and it's kind of I think taking a default um, understanding of those two roles. So I think that as as Al deals with ethics, because he talks a lot about, well, he actually talks about strategies for ethical vulnerability mm -hmm. in community art making. He talks about allyship, and um, that's that's a really uh, different way of thinking about the audience, I think, than a, than than the traditional idea. He's talking about ideas like consent. Um, 
you know, if, if there's, if there's some difficult topics, maybe people need to know about that. Um, and, you know, know that they can kind of remove themselves comfortably from, from, from the experience. So, so I don't know. It, it, it seems like that's, a, that's in a way a very different framework for thinking about the relationships between artists and audience. And it's also in a way active. It, it invites more active participation from the audience. So then I think the next steps to kind of take Al's ideas forward would be to just kind of play that out. I mean, how, do, how does that work in different specific artistic scenarios? I think it's the point that you made that is a reflection on what Al is saying, of course, is interesting because we don't want to cause harm. But he does make a point to say that you have to experience pain to some degree to know when to stop. And so I, I, I invite us as we continue to think through um, the Institute, how do we take risk? Um, without causing like real harm, like, you know, people may feel uncomfortable, um, sharing experience or maybe going through a certain VR experience, but understanding those risks before they kind of immerse themselves, um, in that particular story. And yeah, I, I appreciated that about Al. And I also appreciate the way that he's consistently, even in our advisory board meetings that are not recorded, he's able to synthesize the thoughts of multiple like advisory board members succinctly. Like he doesn't speak much, but when he does, it's always like very theoretical and applicable across the board with, with multiple advisory board members are saying. Um, and I think that was a, a great strength of his. Yeah. And I'm, I, as an, as a creative artist, I, I'm not so much wrestling with, but thinking about the fact that we want the art to be really intense. Mm -hmm. And, <laughs> And we all, we also, people, people like sometimes to be scared. I mean, they like For to sure. go on, you know, they like to go to uh, Disney and go on rides that'll kind of Disney's do. not scary. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe not. It's, it, uh, it, it depends what context. There may be some. Dis oh, oh, that's funny. That's funny. Yes. You're good boy. <laughs> but, but having, having said that, you know, you go on rides that just kind of like throw you all over the place right, and, right. and people like that. Uh, I, I'm thinking back to a, a piece I did with uh, with a colleague of mine, Ben Knapp, uh, a long time ago now, um, over a decade ago. And it was called Stem Cells. And part of it was creating music through bio um, bio signals that were generated by the audience themselves. So we actually had sensors on the audience. And there was a part of the piece where, where Ben actually ventures out into the audience and gets into their physical. people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He, he gets, he, well, you know, Ben, he's not a scary person, <laughs> right, but, right. but he gets into their personal space. He doesn't, he never touches them, of course, but as, um, as he gets closer to the audience, their, um, their gal galvanic skin response shoots way up and you immediately hear that in, in the, um, in the sound because the sound is, um, uh, basically sonifying that information. On the spot. It was doing it like on the spot. On the spot live. Okay. And so, so that would be an example where there were, there were two levels of discomfort because Ben himself is, feels uncomfortable as a performer. And so, and, and we found ways to use that to shape aspects of, of the sound. But also we knew that when you get close to someone and, uh, you know, in, into their personal space, there are some physio physiological, physiological reactions that just, just happen. And then we use them. And I don't know if there's, you know, I don't know if there's a, an issue of consent necessarily there because, uh, you know, if everybody, you know, if everybody knew it was coming, I wonder if it would, you know, they, they would be a little bit less, have less of a, uh, right. a, a shock reaction. And, um, there was nothing happening that seems to be really unethical. And, and also people, people knew that their 
their biosignals were part of the piece. So, okay, so they could also, they could in a way experience that what was happening um, to them internally and what was happening to other audience members was doing something very dramatic in the sound. And, and it really was. I mean, it's the sort of thing that you have this kind of really pretty low frequency sort of um, buzzing vocal sort of thing. And as Ben gets into the audience, it just shoots way up. So there's no, there's no question about what's happening. So question, yeah. I got a question. So were there different sounds assigned to different people or so I guess, was it possible for other people to know like, Oh, that's this person's sound that's changing or not? That's a great question. It, it, it wasn't really identifiable because there were okay. multiple layers. So each person okay. had their own layer, but the layers basically sounded the same. Okay. Um, but we did we did have some uh, in with other pieces along that line. We did for some people have the feeling they felt that they were helping to create the piece with mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. with their emotions. So um, I I guess where where I'm going with this is there's there's a balance there somewhere somewhere or maybe maybe we need maybe I need to be more analytical about the points where. Okay, here are some things that we really need to be careful about. Um, so I don't know. Does does anybody have any specific ideas about what that might be? Say it again. Yeah. So, I mean, where do we go? Where do you cross the line? So, for example, I would think that anything... Touching that somebody inv- is crossing the line. Touching somebody, I think, it really does that. Spitting on somebody oh. or breathing hard, like in, you know, where they can yeah. kind of feel the breath, like a touch is... I think crossing the line. Um, are we just talking about in terms of proximity? No, I think, you know, in terms of, you know, it, it opens up that kind of question about when you're going to do art that's that's going to be in some way um, confrontational or challenging or, or difficult. Um, I yeah. I mean, what, what do you what do you all think of that? What do you think in Wallace? <laughs> yeah, I'm just thinking about how how that's interesting and and how all has has gone through the same questions with, with his work, right? Um, when he talks about this protocol to so that people can can express like what is okay and what is not okay, um, because. Of course, we we try to to come up with an idea of what what is acceptable, right? But uh, that depends a lot on on the actual person. So, um, if if you're building something, um, how can you create these mechanisms that allow you to to figure out, right, and people to be comfortable uh, and know until which limit they are comfortable um, in the experience, right? So when he tries to do this different AR applications, uh, like which involve like movements and, and eye contact and, and, and touch. Um, how do you make that in a way that that is exciting and interesting for everyone, but without making people uncomfortable in the process, right? This seems like hard, hard questions. I feel like when you asked the question, Eric, you already had some answers you were thinking through. Is this yeah. the case? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, I mean, one thing that came up in the conversation actually was that you could maybe simulate touch or the idea of touch or intimacy without touch. I mean, you could you uh, you could do that in in the VR space or also with uh, with spatial audio. And I can think again of another uh, piece that that was also a collaboration with Ben that um, that used the immersive, basically an immersive um, audio system. And at one point, we had a recording of uh, footsteps crunching through leaves. And I spatialized it in such a way, people were wearing bone conduction headphones. So some of the sound was actually going just directly vibrating your head. So technically it was touch, but uh, there was a moment where I had the sound of the footsteps walking coming from off the walls, then into one side of the head 
and then out the other side of the head and then over to the other wall. So technically speaking, I had somebody walking through your head. Uh, but <laughs> nobody complained about it. But but that was an example, I think, of where we could get that's that sense of real intimacy, real closeness. And it didn't feel to me that that there were um, that there were ethical problems with that. I feel you um, because I had the experience um, of your creation of that. And so I can I, I agree. But maybe that's because of the kind of sound it was. It was a walk. Maybe if it was a moan. Maybe if it was a different kind of sound, then we are in a, a domain where it may be explicit and not wanted. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I, I, I agree. I, I, I can also think of some examples of, of art that's just completely irresponsible. That, you know, that I, I wouldn't do now. And I, I just um, I I. I think that what happens is there, you know, we were probably going to leave some some things behind. Exactly what you said, like some kind of sounds are just kind of be really disturbing to a lot of people um, in in that context. But then maybe if if we agree not to go there, then we gain other kinds of um, of intense expressivity in a different space that um, that Al and some of the other people that we've been talking to in, um, on our board are, are laying out. In other words, we, with all of the, uh, really palpable aspects of virtual reality, and I think it's going to only get more so, especially with the, the recent introduction of the, uh, the Vision Pro, the Apple, uh, virtual reality, um, device. I, I mean, we'll have to see how, how many people wind up going with these things. But as, as these things go into the consumer space, you see a lot more people using them. You see a lot more content being created for it. So I think there's, there's a very, very good likelihood that there's just going to be a, 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 new or a new-ish aesthetic vocabulary? Yeah, I think as more con independent content creators are allowed to put their content in an app store for VR experiences um, that are, you know, just become more popular, then we will expose ourselves to more things that can have potential harm, which is the point of this institute that we are seeking to build. Absolutely. And I, the last thing I want to say about this is we've been talking about the nervous side of this. We want to be like careful that we don't, uh, you know, uh, upset people or, you know, um, overstep boundaries. But, uh, you know, another point that Al made was the idea of building a brave space, a space where mm -hmm. there actually are you, you could go forward and it, there has to be, it has to be a, a space of trust between the artist and the, um, the participants where you could explore whatever you want to explore. But that, that then suggests that the ethics are in how do you build that space to where, um, where people feel okay going someplace where maybe if you just kind of started and hit them with something really disturbing, it would just not be good. Yeah. I, yeah. This reminds me about this, this point on, um, it's not exactly autonomy, but I think, I think it's, it's, it's related to that. Right. When, when you talk about like consent and about the fact that when you design something, right. Uh, by by definition, you're limiting and and offering certain choices, right? So you build an experience there. Um, there are certain things that can be done. Uh, there are certain things that you expect people to do, right? Uh, certain things that are impossible, and certain things that you expect that they will not do, right? Uh, so there's a lot of decisions in there that 
um, that the designer, the creator had to, had to do in the first place. And the point that he makes that those are all um, interconnected to, to power, right? And this brings a different, different set of concerns, right? Because even, even if you as a participant, uh, someone who's experiencing like something, uh, feel that it's okay, <laughs> that doesn't necessarily mean that that's something that you would do, right? Uh, if you had the choice, right? But that choice was, was, was made for you by the designer of the experience, right? Like in your example, people didn't have the choice not to wear the, <laughs> the uh, skin sensor and had their emotions broadcasted over the whole experience, right? Uh, those were defined a priori by you. Um, so yeah, I think that brings a different, different level of, of reflection on the responsibilities that the designers have and the power the designers have by, by making those choices. If you are hearing this message, you've listened to the entire episode. And for that, we thank you. Thank you, ACLS, for your support of our podcast and our project. Thank you to our advisory board members for your contributions. Damon Davis, Riam Alielden, Ashley Shu, Brian Carter, and Al Evangelista, who was a guest on this episode. Special thanks to Amanda Hodes, our assistant to our advisory board. Thank you, VT Publishing and Joe Fort for producing this podcast. I'm Taisha Thompson, and on behalf of Wallace Lodges and Eric Lyon, we hope you enjoyed this new episode. And if you did, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Please share this episode with others who may be interested in this topic. See you next month for a new episode with our full advisory board.